You're listening to Ecclesia, a study of church history, part of the podcast ministry of Sycamore Baptist Church in Decatur, Texas. My name is CJ Frazier, and I would like to personally invite you to join us for worship. For more information about our church, please visit www.sycamoredecatur.com. And now, we hope you enjoy this session's podcast on church history. We'll settle in for session six in our study of church history. And this evening, I want to focus on the factors that set the stage for Christianity moving from a time of persecution to a time of really what we would call wide acceptance in the Roman Empire, even to the point where it becomes the state religion in, in Rome for, for the longest period of time. And as we do that this evening, I want to begin by first saying that before things would get better in the Roman Empire with regard to Christian persecution, they would get worse. You may recall that last week we really detailed how bad persecution of Christians was in the first and second centuries. Well, I hate to say it, but in the third century, it was not any better. And even at the turn of the fourth century, it was only worse. So I want to just highlight a few different Roman emperors and some of the things that they did in order to ramp up Christian persecution and their reasons for it. The first of those emperors is a man by the name of Emperor Decius. You can see there on the screen that he reigned from 249 to 251 AD. So it's not a, a long period of time, but the thing that you will notice if you go and study the history of Rome is many of their emperors didn't last very long. Um, there was always somebody plotting behind the scenes. There was always wars to be fought. Many of them fell sick. Many of them died in war. Some of them sometimes died as the result of uprisings and being sometimes literally stabbed in the back and things like that. So these emperors didn't always last long, but I want to just talk a little bit about Emperor Decius for a moment. This man was a former military general, and he had done such a good job in leading his troops that he actually leveraged them in order to rise up against the current Roman emperor and to overthrow him. And so he secured power for himself in that way. And even though his rule was short-lived, Decius uh, would prove himself to be militant not only toward other nations, but also toward Christians within the Roman nation itself. Here's just a little bit about his attitude toward Christians from one Christian historian. He says, quote, in 250 AD, Decius organized the first universal persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire, close quote. Now, you remember last week we talked about how persecution was kind of springing up at different places throughout the Roman Empire, and certain emperors, especially Emperor Nero in the first century, they had a very negative view of Christians. But Christianity never actually became illegal in the Roman Empire until the time of Decius, and he uh, gathered all of his collective efforts, and he gathered all of, of his resources, and he went hard and fast after Christians, beginning in the year 250. Here's what he did. He demanded that all Romans would give sacrifice to the Roman gods, and he knew by doing that he would be able to weed out true Christians. Why? Because a true Christian would never pledge allegiance to any god other than the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he knew that this empire-wide decree would either bring about the compliance of Christians, 
or it would bring about their deaths. So here's what they would do. They would, they would seek out actively now those who they believe to be Christian. They would bring them in and require them to offer sacrifice to the Roman gods. If they would not do so, they would give them the chance to recant. If they would not recant, they would put them to death. Well, as you can imagine, two sad realities emerged from this. Number one, you had many who walked away from and abandoned the Christian faith. Now, biblically, we understand that those who walk away from the faith, according to the book of 1 John, were never in the faith to begin with. But you have those who, at least for a time, claimed Christ, and then they ended up turning on Jesus at the most important time of their life. And then you have others who stood firm in their faith, and they paid for it with their own blood. While many ended up giving in to the request, many Christians did not. And these Christians were often first tortured if they would not confess that Caesar was Lord. Uh, can, you, can you imagine being tortured for your faith, not just put to death? You'll remember that last week we focused on Christians being put to death, but it's Decius who not only is putting them to death, but he's now torturing them because he believes that torture might bring them uh, to, to recant and to, and to deny Christ. However, if they would continue to hold fast to Christ, they were almost always certainly put to death. And this reminds me of the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. I know that you'll remember these words in, in verses 23 and 24 of chapter 9. Jesus said to all his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I think that this time in Christian history really adequately illustrates that point, that there were many who for the sake of their earthly physical life would deny Jesus and likewise prove that they didn't belong to Jesus, but there were many who counted their lives as nothing for the sake of Christ and his gospel. And I can't imagine what it was like the moment that they entered heaven to the shouts of joy of other believers and to the smile of their Savior. Decius likewise actively uh, pursued Christian leaders, particularly those who were leading the church in Rome, in Antioch, in Jerusalem. Now, you remember that each of those three places was very strategic. You had Rome in the southeast part of the Roman Empire. You had Antioch in the, in the northeast, and then you had Rome, uh, excuse me, at Jerusalem in the southeast. You had Antioch, and then you had, excuse me, Rome there in the west. And so those were all three very strategic cities. And so Decius knew if he could go after Christian leaders in those influential cities, he had a shot at snuffing Christianity out all together. And so uh, I want to just highlight one of those Christian leaders who was actually able to escape. His name was Cyprian. He was a Christian leader in the church in Antioch, and he was only able to escape from Decius because he was able to hide for a period of time. Now, Decius, uh, to, the, to the thanks of many believers, was eventually killed in battle which led to a short relief of persecution until Emperor Valerian arrived on the scene. And so we'll talk about Emperor Valerian next. You'll notice that his reign began in 253. So there was a period of time between Decius and Valerian where there was not as much persecution going on in the Roman Empire by the, the, the emperor in between the two. But by the time Emperor Valerian enters upon the scene, he renewed the efforts of Decius. According to one historian, he said, quote, in 257, Valerian prohibited all meetings for Christian worship 
And then he systematically tried to kill all the church's bishops and presbyters. So whereas Decimus did, or Decius, excuse me, whereas he sought to, to make Rome um, more and more consciously aware of Christians and put them to death, Valerian ratchets down even more, and he doubles down even more, where he's going after every church leader in every city and every Christian in every city. Remember that man by the name of Cyprian that I just mentioned who was able to escape Decius by hiding? Well, Valerian found him, and he put him to death along with many others. And although Valerian ruled for six years, the end of his life would mean another decrease in persecutions. For another 25 years, the church uh, experienced a relative time of peace and ease in the Roman Empire. That is until the worst of Christian persecution would come in the form of a new emperor, and his, emperor, and his name was Diocletian. You may have heard of Diocletian before, and there's a reason for that, because Diocletian is going to bring about the absolute worst type of persecution that Christians experience in the Roman Empire. But before we talk about Diocletian, I want to talk very quickly about the strategy of Diocletian. Diocletian arrives on the scene in 284 AD in order to take over Rome as its emperor, and he would reign from 284 until 305. For a very long time, he reigned. And during his reign, Diocletian came up with a new strategy. He decided to divide the Roman Empire up into four sections and to place a different emperor over every region of Rome. And you may say, well, why would a man who's in control over the known world decide to divide up his power? And there's a very good reason for that. You see, Roman emperors loved war. They loved to conquer things. They loved to conquer people. They loved fighting. However, they detested civil war. That was their, their worst enemy, war within Rome itself. And you'll remember that Pax Romano, or the peace of Rome, was a big deal. And so they sought for Rome at all times to be at peace. It's kind of an ironic virtue for an empire that's known for its ravaging and for its warfare. But this man, Diocletian, he sought to bring Rome under a banner of peace and unity, and he thought the best way to do that was to divide power as well. So he made a risky move. We'll talk about the effects of that here in just a moment. But essentially, I just want to explain what it was that Diocletian did, because knowing that and understanding that will help give us some context for things that happen within the church over the course of, of the next few years. Uh, Diocletian essentially, he gave greater power to one man, and then he gave lesser power, or gave greater power to himself and another man, and then lesser power to two other men who would rule. You'll notice there on the screen it says that in the West, he gave power to another emperor by the name of Max, Maximian, um, and he assigned to him the title of Augustus, Emperor Augustus. Beneath Maximian was another emperor by the name of Constantius Chlorus, and now forgive me if I butcher these names because I've only ever read them. I've never actually said them out loud. But Constantius Chlorus, and he gave him the title of Emperor Caesar. So through these two titles, Emperor Augustus and Emperor Caesar, he essentially created a power balance in the West. He allowed Maximian to have the greater power, and Constantius would report to Maximian as the lesser ruler. And so the west part of the Roman Empire was ruled in that way, or I guess I could do it this way. If, if you're thinking of west, west would be that way. 
So those two men ruled over the western part of the empire. Diocletian, on the other hand, would rule the eastern part of the empire, and a man by the name of Galerius would rule beneath him as his Caesar. So you have four emperors now, but you have two greater emperors and two lesser emperors. Diocletian also set it up so that once those two greater emperors decided that it was time for them to retire, once they willingly either got too old or gave up their power, those two men beneath them would then take their positions as Emperor Augustus, and they would appoint men below them to serve as their Caesar. So you can see he's trying to strive for unity. He's trying to give a little bit of power so that he can gain a unified empire. Well, as you can imagine, this backfired almost immediately for Diocletian. Because once people are given power, they are not very quick to give it up, are they? And once people are given a little bit of power, they don't want less power, they want more power. And so this became glaringly evident not too long after Diocletian put this plan into place. In fact, what we would find is that, interestingly enough, Diocletian himself was not, at least at the very beginning, opposed to Christianity. In fact, three of these four men that I just mentioned were not opposed to Christianity. The one man who was, was the man named Galerius, who was directly beneath the rule of Diocletian. Galerius was, he was, uh, he had a warrior mentality, and he, he loved to advance his army, loved to build up his army, and he wanted to have an efficient fighting force. And what drove Galerius absolutely mad about the Christians was that the Christians weren't really quick to sign up for the military. They didn't want to go to war. They didn't want to kill. They didn't want to fight people. They wanted peace. Galerius didn't want any of that. He wanted a massive army. And so Galerius took the liberty of putting Christians to death if they would not fight in his army. And he encouraged the other Roman emperors as well. He saw this as a major problem. He said, hey, our, our army is getting soft with all these Christians, so we either need to demand that they serve in the army, or we need to go ahead and kill them because they're not much good to us otherwise. And he was a very persuasive man, and his persuasion eventually swayed the other three men, but most importantly, it swayed Diocletian. And so Diocletian supported Galerius in that effort, and he supported him in putting Christians to death if they would not serve in the military. But furthermore, another incident happened, which ironically mirrors an incident that we saw from last week. You remember last week, it was a fire in the city of Rome that brought Nero to hate Christians because rumors spread that Christians were the ones that had started the fire, even though it could have been Nero himself uh, that had started that fire. Well, ironically, there were a series of two fires at a very important place in the Roman Empire, inside of the palace itself. Two fires were started during the time of Diocletian. And guess who those fires got blamed on? Christians. Christians were blamed for both of those fires. So whether or not that was sensationalized or true, we aren't really certain. Again, who knows how those fires got started. But it was Christians who, bared, who would bear the brunt of the rumors and would bear the brunt of the wrath of Emperor Diocletian. So Diocletian decides that he is going to issue an edict that says, not only are we going to persecute Christians, but we're going to make Christianity itself illegal. And if you are a Christian, you are going to be put to death. And so interestingly enough, 
Galerius is able to have this type of uh, influence over Diocletian. And all of this is going to come to a head at the year 303 AD, whenever those fires took place. Now, of course, as I mentioned, Diocletian was the, the kind of the, the linchpin of all this, but the man who had influence beneath him, uh, this man named Galerius, was kind of the one pulling the strings behind the scenes. And as I mentioned, Galerius was a very persuasive man. He was so persuasive, in fact, that he talked his emperor, Diocletian, and he talked the Western emperor into retiring early, giving the two Caesars now the control that they would enjoy as uh, Emperor Augustus. And so you have Galerius doing that in the east. You have the other uh, Caesar doing that in the west. Uh, Constantius Chlorus uh, is his name. And so these two men rise to power, and the other two Caesars effectively step off the scene. And there are two others who come to replace uh, the the two missing um, emperors below them. I know that's all kind of confusing, but it's important context. And it's important because Galerius finds himself in a position of great, great power. He finds himself in, in position to retake what Diocletian so easily gave up. And one thing that was standing in between him and total absolute power were these Christians, these Christians who would not bow the knee to Caesar, these Christians who would not bow the knee to the Roman gods. And so Galerius only ramped up that persecution even more. But thankfully, just about the time that all of this comes to a head in 303 AD, the very next thing that happens is that the tide begins to turn. Now, one thing I want to mention at this point in our study is something that I've mentioned before, but it's important that we come back to it. One hallmark that you will find throughout church history is the unquestionable presence of divine intervention. Throughout the history of the church, we will see this at several pivotal points in the church's history. And it all goes back to what Jesus said at the very beginning. On this rock, I will build my church, the truth of the gospel, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Well, as the Roman Empire is tightening its grip on Christianity and it's putting Christians to death left and right, not even just putting them to death, but torturing them, forcing, forcing some to abandon the faith altogether and forcing others by their example to, to just cower in fear. At this point in Rome's history, God does something that is absolutely remarkable. It was... Um, one of the emperors before Diocletian who had, uh, who had become sick, uh, and that, that man would end up, excuse me, it was Diocletian himself who became sick, and that's what allowed Galerius to persuade him that, man, maybe it's time for you to retire. Go work in your cabbage patch for the rest of your life. And Diocletian said, sure, I'll do that. Well, just a few years later, Galerius finds himself sick as well, and he's sick with an illness that is eventually going to result in his death. And as Galerius is contemplating his life, and as he's contemplating the plight of his situation, and essentially as he is on his deathbed, he does something that could be nothing short of a divine miracle. He decides to issue an edict, and it became known as the Edict of Galerius on April the 30th in the year 311 AD. And in that edict, essentially what Galerius does is he reverses all of Rome's persecution toward Christians 
with one fell swoop. In fact, I want to just read to you some uh, transcription of what that edict said as it is recorded in history for us. Galerius said, quote, Moved by our mercy to be benevolent toward all, it has seemed just to us to extend to them, to Christians, our pardon and allow them to be Christians once again and once again gather in their assemblies as long as they do not interfere with public order. In return for our tolerance, Christians will be required to pray to their God for us, for the public good, and for themselves, so that the state may enjoy prosperity and they may live in peace, close quote. Now, these don't sound like the words of a man who so violently persecuted the church. These don't sound like the words of a man who has come under some great conviction that perhaps the Christians are worshiping the right God and he's worshiping the wrong God. But do you know what these words sound like? These words sound like that of a man who is paranoid and superstitious as he's come under some grave sickness that is eventually going to cost his life. And he's laying on his deathbed contemplating, oh my goodness, did I get it wrong? And there were rumors circulating during that day in the Christian church that God himself had stricken Galerius with this illness and that Galerius was only issuing this edict out of his superstition because that's what the Romans were. They were superstitious people. Whatever the case, we know that God providentially brought about this illness upon this evil, wicked man. And it was through this life-threatening illness that he issues this about-face edict that in one day changes Rome's entire outlook toward Christianity. In one moment, it's all changed. Now, you tell me if that is anything short than the power of God to accomplish that. That's exactly what took place. This man hated Christ. He hated Christians. He devoted his entire rule as emperor of Rome in order to putting Christians to death. And at the end of his life, the Lord puts him to death, but not before he issues this edict. And I want to tell you also about the timing of God. The timing here could not have been any more critical because no more than five days after he issues this edict, he dies. Galerius succumbs to his illness and he dies. But what does he leave behind? He leaves behind an edict that says that the Roman Empire will no longer persecute Christians for their faith. They're free to exercise their faith so long as they will pray to their God for the good of the Roman Empire. That sounds like a pretty good deal for Christians, doesn't it? But I want to bring your attention now to a second event that takes place just one year later. It's amazing, again, I I meant to mention this in the, in the introduction to the section, but three events take place in sequential years, 311, 312, and 313 AD. The edict of Galerius in 311, and then we move to probably the most, uh, the most noteworthy of these events, the Battle of the Milvian Bridge on October the 28th in the year 312 AD. If you're familiar with the emperor who would come to power not too long after the rule and reign of Galerius, you know of this man by the name of Constantine. And he is a man that we will give more attention to next week. Um, And I'm not exactly sure exactly how much emphasis we'll give to him. But we will at least next week talk much more about Constantine and his rule and reign as emperor. But you may remember that a couple of slides ago, as I was showing you Diocletian's plan, 
In the east, you had Diocletian, who was Emperor Augustus, the main ruler in the east, and beneath him, his henchman Galerius, who ends up taking his place. And to the west, you'll remember this emperor named Maximian, who was the main emperor in the west, Emperor Augustus. And below him, that man with a name that's difficult to say, but Constantius Chlorus, who was Caesar beneath him. Well, after Maximian abdicated his role, after Diocletian abdicated his role, and after the two men below them rose to power, behind them came the two sons of the two men from the west, Maximian's son and Constantius's son. Maximian's son took hold of his father's uh, empire, and Constantius's son took hold of his father's empire. And that man was a man by the name of Constantine. So Constantine finds himself ruling in the far western part of the Roman Empire, in the area literally today of Great Britain is where Constantine was ruling. Well, Constantine, as this, this newly uh, uh, you know, christened emperor of, of Rome to the west, decides that it's not enough for him to simply rule over his little far western quadrant of Rome. He wants to advance eastward, and he wants to take over the quadrant next to him. So he goes to war with the son of Maximian. And this war was going to come to a head there in Rome itself. And it was going to come to a head at this famous bridge, the Milvian Bridge. And Constantine, as he's amassing his troops and as he's getting ready to, to rally his troops to take over Rome, he's giving the emperor in Rome the chance to give it up. And against his better judgment, he listens to the advice of his advisors. And he says, no way, Jose, I'm going to fight you with everything that I got. And so the two men are getting ready to go to battle on October the 28th, 312. But the night before... On October the 27th, something peculiar happened. As Constantine gets ready to go to bed that night, as the story goes, he goes to sleep, and he has this incredible dream. There's a couple of different sources that we look to that differ slightly in their interpretation of that dream, but they, they both give the same thrust as to what happened. I'll explain the differences as we go. As Constantine goes to sleep, some way or another, he receives this dream, which was more like a vision in his eyes. And in that dream, there was a symbol that was revealed to him. And that symbol was two Greek letters. The Greek letter chi, which, which looks like an X in English, but it, it is equivalent to the letters CH in English. And then the letter rho, which looks like a, a P in English, but it stands for the letter R if you were to transliterate into English. So there you have letters C, H, and R, which are the first three letters for the name of Christ. And that emblem, the Cairo emblem, as you've probably seen it before, it was an early Christian emblem that that was recognized by believers. It, it, it recognized uh, who Jesus was as the Christ, the anointed one. Was Constantine is having this dream, that emblem appeared before him. According to one account, it was written in the sky. I don't know if it was in the clouds or how he saw it, but it was, it was written in the sky somehow. And according to another account, it was actually emblazoned on the shields of the soldiers in his army. And in that dream, according to one account, Constantine was told that this was how he would win the battle the next day. And so again, because emperors in Rome are superstitious, and because 
um, because they love to call upon whatever God there is to call upon if he will give them victory in battle. For whatever reason, we do know it is historical fact the next day that as Constantine goes into that battle, the battle of the Milvian Bridge, he goes with his standard raise. You remember that during this time, uh, the armies would raise a standard in battle. It was their, their flag you know, that had their emblem on it. Well, guess what emblem they had on that flag? It was the emblem of Christ, that Cairo image. This is the flag, the standard that they carried with them into battle. Well, you can probably assume what happens next. They win the battle by a landslide. Constantine is able to conquer the entire western half of the Roman Empire. And guess who he had to credit for it? He had to credit Christianity, and namely Jesus Christ himself for it. So for better or for worse... That's what happened, and Constantine is immediately sympathetic toward Christ and toward his people because of it. Now, there are many speculations as to whether or not Constantine was ever actually a Christian. We'll talk more about that next week. There was a period of time whenever he made some sort of confession, and the things that he did certainly show that he was, at the very least, extremely sympathetic toward Christianity. But I just want you to note that, again, we have another act of divine power working in the midst of church history in order to bring this rising emperor to power beneath the banner, literally, of Christ. So as Constantine grows in popularity, as he grows in power, he is literally carrying with him the name of Christ into battle as he makes that march. Well, that leads us finally to the last in the series of three annual events which turned the tide in the favor of Christianity in the Roman Empire. We had the Edict of Galerius in 311. We had the, the, the battle that took place at this bridge in Rome in the year 312. And then in the year 313, all of this culminated with the Edict of Milan. And this final event is the subsequent outcome of the previous one. Once Constantine had conquered all of Western Rome, he then made a pact with Licinius, who at that time was the leader of Rome's eastern region. And part of their formal agreement brought about the official end of all of Rome's persecution of Christians. You remember that Galerius had issued an edict to stop persecuting Christians. Constantine and Licinius made that edict even more formal in making sure that Christianity was no longer illegal, that Christians were free to openly worship however they pleased. They were free to worship exclusively Christ if they so desired, without fear, without persecution. This was a big deal. In fact, you probably even remember learning about this in world history. The Edict of Milan was a huge event, not just in the history of the church, but in the history of the Roman Empire, and subsequently in all of human history in the, first, in the first place. And what I want us to understand is that this event would also set the stage for Constantine's eventual empire-wide promotion of Christianity itself. And so looking over the course of these next two centuries of Christian history, the 200s and the early to mid-300s, what I want us to take note of is this, is that persecution got much worse before things would get better. But when things did get better, it happened very abruptly. So much so that, that I would dare say that it was an intentional act of God to bring it about. I think we can clearly see that through our time and our study this evening. And through it all, what we're going to begin to see now 
as the church moved from a time of great persecution, yet great prosperity as it was spreading to the Roman Empire, what we're going to begin to see in the coming centuries to follow is now the church transitioning to a time of physical prosperity as the state religion of Rome, but spiritually the church is going to begin to spiral as the church and the state intermingle, and things get very clouded, and they get very messy very quickly.